Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to go all the way back to the beginning this morning. And the question that I want to start us off with today is, what is nothing? What does it mean to see nothing? Now, some of you guys, this is one of those questions that that keeps you awake at night. And you're trying to picture, you're trying to imagine, what would it be like if there was just nothing? Um, I, I heard an interview recently with an astronaut who, who went up to, she's taken uh, at least two trips up to the International Space Station. She's done work inside of the space station, and she's done spacewalks, fixing things that were happening on the outside of the space station. She had a couple of, couple of thoughts about what it was like to be up in space and then to look back at the earth and to try and try and see it uh, and try and try and take it all in. She said the first time that she saw earth from space, she cried. But because there's no gravity up in space, the tears just pooled on her eyes. And she so she had to wipe them away so she could keep looking. They didn't run down her face, which I thought was interesting. She said that, that one of the times or that when she goes out on the spacewalks, um, that there's a difference in temperature between if you're behind the earth and so there's no sun or if you're on the, on the sun side of the earth and, and it's you know, really bright. She said that the temperature goes from minus 250 degrees to plus 250 degrees. Um, in, in the matter of just moments, it, it heats up that fast. Uh, because they're moving around the earth at over 17,000 miles an hour, they experience sunrise every 90 minutes. And I took a, or I grabbed a picture here of the, the space station uh, seeing that, that sunrise. And you can just imagine what that would look like as you're, as you're flying around the earth every 90 minutes seeing that, that view right there. And the thing that I thought was most interesting is she was talking about what it's like being on the space station because out in space... If she was to, to try and go out there without any sort of protection at all, she would be almost instantly killed. The environment is completely inhospitable to human life. But out there in space, they've created this little ordered realm where humans can exist in the middle of the chaos. And in Genesis chapter 1, we see God doing this exact same thing for us, God creating, carving out this space for us in the middle of the chaos where humanity and, and life in general can exist. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, says like this In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we could stop just four words in to that, couldn't, couldn't we? In the beginning, God. Before anything else, before, before existence existed, before life was ever thought of, God was. And what we see here is that God is outside of everything. That God is over everything. That everything was created through Him. And so in this, what we see is that God has authority and power over all created things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 
Now, back in uh, ancient Israel, back in ancient Israel, so this is, we're talking about 4,500 years ago when, when these passages were first put down on, it wasn't paper back then, it would have been like papyrus or something. Um, when, when, these, when these passages were first written, they didn't have a concept of what nothing was. Instead, their, their idea of nothing wasn't, wasn't outer space, like we think of it, but their idea of nothing was standing at the edge of the ocean or at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea and looking out on a pitch black night and you can hear the wind and you can feel the waves and you know that there's something out there, but you can't see it and it's terrifying and it's scary. And so when he, when he says here that, that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, that's their way of describing nothing because they didn't have a concept of space. They didn't have a concept of outer space. They, in fact, their, their idea of earth back then was that, that there, was, there was water all around us. There was water up above us because when you look up, the sky is blue and it kind of looks like, like water. So, so there's water up above us. And in fact, they also believed that there was water underneath us because if you dig a well, if you dig down far enough, you're going to hit water, right? So they thought that water encompassed everything and that humanity lived on a little island in the middle of the water. I think that's kind of fascinating to, to think about when you, when you think about then all of the different times when God does things with the water in the Bible. Like you think about Moses parting the Red Sea, right? He, Moses raises his staff, but it's God is the one that divides the waters. The, the, these things that were, that were you know, underneath, that were all around, this chaos that was everywhere, is under God's control. But then you fast forward into the New Testament, what do you see of Jesus? What does Jesus do to the storm when he's out on the boat? He speaks to it, right? And the wind and the waves are calmed. And, and God has authority over even all of creation. Even that chaos water was nothing to God. And, and in another passage, we see Jesus walking on the water because the wind and the waves, they had to obey him. So these, these ideas carry even more weight because of, uh, because of this idea in their mind that, that the water was, was something to uh, be feared, but feared in, in like the idea of respected, right? It was, it was this idea that, that I, need to, uh, I need to be very careful what I do out here on the water because the water is always trying to hurt me. Just like if we were to go in outer space today, we would say, before I do that spacewalk, I'm going to make sure that every seal is buttoned up. I'm going to make sure that my helmet is closed. I'm going to make sure that my visor's down. I'm going to make sure that my oxygen is flowing. Because I know that as soon as I step out of this, if there's any possible cracks, it's going to kill me. And in the same way, they thought of the waters just like that. So in the beginning, God creates this small, ordered realm inside of the chaos, not unlike a space station, up in, up in outer space, and he sets people in this ordered realm for a purpose. And that's what I want us to focus on for the next few minutes, is, is what was God's great plan? Why did God create us? What was, what was his idea? What did he do? Why was he, um, why was he, why did he start this whole thing up? Why make people in the first place? But before I jump in and talk about it, um, 
I want to introduce you guys. So for those of you that haven't been doing the Bible reading plan, at the end of every day, we have a devotional that we do. And the, the author and the, the lady that presents it is a lady by the name of Tara Lee Cobble. I've taken the, the first day's devotional and I've cut it up a little bit. To, it was like 12 minutes long. I cut it up so that we didn't have to, to watch the whole thing. Um, but what I want to do now is I want to I watch. She's going to recap the first, three day, or the first three chapters of Genesis for us. So if we could go ahead and, and play that video. Hey, right Bible now. readers, I'm Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm your host for the Bible Recap. It's day one, and I'm so excited that you're here with me for this. Each day, I'll start out by aiming to give you a high-level view of where we are in the meta-narrative. If you're not familiar with the word meta-narrative, that just means the overarching storyline. There are lots of stories in these 66 books of the Bible, but they all work together to tell one big story. That's the meta-narrative. So today I'll zoom out, and then each day we'll zoom in, and I'll give specific details about what stuck out to me in that day's reading. At the end, we'll have a section called The God Shot, where we look at the picture or snapshot of God's character from that day's reading. The attribute of God that stands out to me and that I reference in this section might be totally different than yours, and that's okay. This is a multi-layered book, so don't expect that we'll all notice the same things every time. By the way, in our God Shot, we're not looking for our application point. This isn't your to-do list. The God Shot is what you see about God, what he loves, what he hates, what he does, what motivates him to do what he does. We're looking for him. That's why we call it the God shot, not the me shot. This might be challenging at first because many of us are used to looking for ourselves in scripture instead of God. And some days will be harder to find the God shot than others, but keep looking for him. He's on every page. Today in our reading, we cover God's creation of the world and mankind, as well as the fall of man. It's important to note that Genesis historically has been regarded as a book of the law. That's even how Jesus refers to it. It's not a science book or even a history book, though it does tell us a lot about history. This book is 100% true, but it isn't always 100% literal. For instance, when Jesus calls someone a dog, it doesn't mean they're a dog. You're probably gonna wanna know which is which, when it's being literal, when it's being general, when it's being allegorical. So if you struggle with that, I suggest getting a study Bible so you can dig into these things a little bit more. All that to say, it's important to hold our scientific conclusions or opinions with an open hand, regardless of what you believe. And honestly, it's even important to hold our questions with an open hand, because this book isn't necessarily here to answer them. It's here to reveal God to us. You may also notice that God refers to himself in the plural form. In Genesis 1.26, he says, let us make man in our image. What we see here, as well as in the rest of scripture, is that the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, were all present at creation. They each had a role to play here. God the Father gave the creation command. The New Testament tells us that God the Son is the one who did the manual labor of creating things in response to the Father's command. Meanwhile, God the Spirit hovered over the creation, sustaining and approving of it all. They work in tandem toward the same goal because they are the same God. The Trinity can be confusing, and we'll discuss more about the three persons of the Trinity as we move through Scripture, but just know God the Son was there in the beginning. 
Jesus didn't just show up on the scene when he was born in the New Testament. Before God the Son ever took on the name Jesus, he existed in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. He's been here all along, eternally existent. And not only was he not made, but he made everything. One of the great things about a sovereign God who is outside of time is that nothing surprises him or throws him off, which is why when Adam and Eve sinned, it didn't thwart his plan. His plan accounted for their sin. In 2.17, he tells them, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. He didn't say if. It implies a certainty that it will happen. When this happens, you shall surely die. The rest of scripture supports this, letting us know that God wasn't relegated to plan B after they ate the fruit. It was always part of plan A. When Eve questions God's goodness and buys the lie that God is holding out on her and decides that she would make a better God, which by the way, that's at the heart of every sin you and I commit, that's when the fall of mankind happens. There's a fracture in the world and it's still fracturing. Not only do we still believe the same lies they believed, but the curses that were pronounced over them still resonate in our world today. But here's what I love about God, and here's where I saw my God shot for today. Not only is he creator, we see that. Not only is he Lord over everything, we see that too. Not only does he decide to get personal with mankind, but in addition to his lordship and his perfection and his strength, he's also merciful. In 2.17, he said that they would die if they ate the fruit but he let them live. He didn't strike them down on the spot. Anytime we see God hedge on his promises, it's on the side of mercy. He doesn't break promises, he exceeds them. We see another example of this in 3.9, when they're hiding from him and lying to him, they didn't even repent yet, but he still pursues them out of love in their sin. He continues to show them both mercy and discipline as he keeps pursuing them out of love. No matter where you are today or what you've done, the capital L-O-R-D is pursuing you out of love. The fact that you're watching this video right now is evidence of that. What a gift to them and to us that he doesn't give up on us because he's where the joy is. He's where the joy is. Um, if, you, if you haven't yet signed up for the Bible reading plan, again, I would encourage you guys to do that. There's so much more that we could cover in Genesis chapter 1, um, but I want to I take a moment really quick to talk about a little bit more about reading the Bible because there's, there's this idea, like she mentioned in the video, of there's the narrative, there's the story, there's what's happening on the page, but then there's this overarching story. And so I want to give you guys a few keys today for how to see the meta-narrative. So as we're going through scriptures for the next uh, 350 days or however, however much longer we have, um, I want to give you guys some keys for how to see the, the bigger picture story. If you've got your notes, I want you guys to go ahead and write these down. Um, but a few things that I see here. The first one is that I want us to watch for the chaos. Okay, I, I mentioned that in uh, in Genesis one, there was the you know the earth was formless and void. There was chaos, and then God stepped into that chaos. But we see chaos all over the place in the Bible. We see chaos in the mind of Cain as he's trying to trying to figure out why God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his. And then and then the Bible says that that he. Uh, he struck down his brother and killed him because of this, this chaos. 
uh, that's going on inside of him. So we see that sin can be chaos in our lives. We see chaos in, in slavery in Egypt. Or we see chaos in the famine that brought the Israelites to Egypt in the first place. We see all of these different times, all of these different ex- expressions of chaos in the Bible where, where there's you know, an, an army and you're up against the Red Sea and you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And there's this, there's this moment, it's that, that moment in the, in the plot where there's tension, right? Where there's, there's something bad happening and you're asking yourself, okay, what is it? Now when you read those things, Right? You can read the, the Red Sea narrative when, when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. You can read that for, for itself, and it's a powerful story that can speak to and has spoken to a lot of us over the years. But also, you can take that and you can place it into the larger story, and God is trying to say something about himself in that, in that story. So it's not just the story itself, but it's the larger story at play as well. So we're going to watch for the chaos, we see it in, in wars, we see it in wilderness, we see it in sickness. Over and over and over again, there's this idea of chaos in the Bible. The next thing we're going to do is we're going to watch for the Messiah. So there's chaos, but then God always sends somebody. God always does something in order to intervene in the chaos, to, to turn chaos back into order. We see, uh, we see you know, the, the Israelites going up to Jericho. And, and Joshua is leading the charge there. And in that moment, he's kind of this messianic figure. Now, he's not the Messiah, right? We know that there was only one Messiah. But we see over and over and over again where God raises somebody up in order to help to speak into whatever Israel is going through at the time. And, and we, so we have figures like Gideon and Samson and Deborah and uh, um, uh, Samuel and, and even the, the kings, Saul and David and Solomon and, and on and on and on, where God has raised people up in order to help deliver his people. Uh, so we see, we see the, the chaos and then we see this, this figure raise up. And, and I think that, you know, if you, were, if you were an Israelite and you were living under the time of Saul, in the in the Old Testament, and so so Saul is your king, and you're like, he's king, but he's not the greatest king. I really wish God would send us another. I really wish God would ultimately send the Messiah, who's going to save and deliver us. And then you start to see David rising up the ranks, and you hear about him killing Goliath, right? And you see that now he's he's leading the armies, and and the people are singing about him. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And you see all of these things happening. And now you get, to, you get to this point where now David is anointed king and finally sits on the throne. You'd have to be wondering, was well, this the Messiah? And then, and then you see after that, there's this time of, there's this time of war as, as other nations are trying to attack. But ultimately, there's peace. And the borders of the country are extended. And, and God, it seems like they're taking over the promised land that God had promised to them hundreds of years earlier and all of these things are happening, and you're like, man, is he, is he the Messiah? So we see, we got the, the chaos, we see the, the messianic figure rise up, and then there's this time of, of Eden, right? There's this time of God, God speaks, there's, there's chaos, there's waters, God speaks to the waters, all of a sudden there's dry land, there's animals, there's people, God has placed people in the garden, and now there's this time of blessing, and there's this time of, of God and man working together in order to see his will accomplished. There's this Eden 
period. But then, then there's this fourth thing that happens, and it happens almost every time when we see a Messiah figure pop up in the Old Testament. And that is there's almost always some sort of a fall. And so we're going to watch the end of the story. And we're going to watch and see what happens to that Messiah figure. And what we see over and over and over again, I mean, we see um, David and Bathsheba, right? We see Solomon and all of his wives. We see um, a lot of people getting in trouble for uh, (laughs) Samson and Delilah, right? Uh, We see Moses being locked out of the promised land. We see Elijah battling depression over and over and over again. These people that God raises up, what we see is that they can't quite finish it. They can't, there's, there's still some flaw inside of them. So by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, and in our Bible reading plan, we're not going to get to the New Testament until October, um, but by the time you get all the way there, like your mind is crying out for somebody to finally do it. Somebody to finally break the curse of sin. Somebody to finally set us free from all of these things that have been happening to us. Somebody to reverse what happens in Genesis 3 and to make a new way for us. We need a Messiah. We need God to show up. Because now we've got hundreds of years of history, thousands of years of history that say that even the best among us can't measure up. Even the best among us stumble and fall. Now, this does two things for me. For one, it points me to Jesus, where I say, man, God, thank you for sending your son. And God, thank you that I'm on the other side of it, (laughs) That, that, that I didn't have to go through all of that. But also, it reminds me and it gives me comfort that God wants to use me because God used all of these people. God used David. God used Moses. God used Abraham. God used, you know, and Noah. Man, when, when you read the story, of, the story of Noah, it's like everything seems to, to work out well. And then there's this final chapter that really is confusing and, and, and odd. And there's all of these things that, that happen over and over and over again. So your mind, by the end of the Old Testament, should be crying out, God, give us a Messiah. And so I want you guys, as you're, as you're reading through the Bible this year, to be looking for those moments. Look for those times and, and, and really pay attention to them because it's, it's important as we learn to read the Bible and as we learn to discover that meta narrative to see that God uses people in spite of our flaws, in spite of our failings, in spite of the times when we let Him down. God still chooses to use us. God's great plan is to work alongside his people to see his will accomplished on earth. This is what God was trying to do in Genesis 1 and and 2. He, He creates the earth. He sets up this garden. He places man in the garden so that man can take care of and tend to the garden and tend to the animals that are in the garden. He gives man a specific job. But then we see in Genesis 3, we see God walking through the garden, because God wanted to work with humanity. God wanted to partner with us, and it's the same thing today. God wants to partner with you in order to bring, uh, we're going we're gonna to say to bring Eden, okay, in order, to, in order to bring that place of his kingdom to Moses Lake, to your family, to your job, to where you are. God wants 
his kingdom here on earth. And that's what, that's what we believe, and that's what we're excited to see as we go through our Bible reading. Genesis 1.27 says it like this. It says, So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every other living creature that moves on the ground. And God said that he was going to give them the trees and he was going to give them the, the fruit and this was going to be their food and to the, the uh, beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. Um, he, he, said, he said, every, every green plant is yours to eat. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, everything on earth, this, this place that, that he, had, he had created, and he said it was good. We have chaos, then God raises up a people to work with him, Adam and Eve working with him in the garden, and then there's Eden. There's this time of blessing, but then we get to chapter 3, don't we? And, and immediately, we see this pattern starting to take form. In fact, as, as you read through the, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, they teach you how to read the entire Bible. And you could spend an entire year just studying those 11 chapters in order to help you to develop the skills to read the, the rest of it. But we see in here that, that there's this, this pattern already taking place. And by the end of chapter 11, we've seen it four different times. Uh, we see it with, with Cain and Abel, we see it with Noah, and then we see it with the Tower of Babel. And so over and over and over again, we see this pattern in action. But Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 1, says it like this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals. I, I still struggle in my head to picture exactly what this interaction must have looked like. You know, serpent comes, ah, oh, talking snake. Um, <laughs> this has got to be so, so weird, right? Um, he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may, eat from fruit, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but he did say, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Now, it's interesting here that, that Eve adds something to what God said that God did not say. God never said that they couldn't touch the tree. He just said, don't eat from the tree. So there's already this, this confusion in her mind. There's already something going on where, where she's starting to doubt, she's starting to question, and we see the, the serpent's question to her, did God say that you can't eat from any tree? Like, well, no, there's this one specific tree, but we can't even touch it. And so she's starting to get kind of confused in her thinking. Um, the serpent said to the, uh, verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes are going to be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I'd love to get into that phrase right there, um, but I, we're, we're not going to have, have time for today. Um, but I, I, will say, I will say this, that, that uh, I think there's a, a, something that happens here where Eve is trying to take something that God wanted to give her, the knowledge of good and evil, but she's trying to take it in her own way. Uh, I don't think that knowing good and evil is bad. I don't think that's what God was trying to just keep them innocent and keep them ignorant. But instead, I think that God wanted to, as he was walking with them, to begin to reveal these things to them, and instead she took it on her own. 
Uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it as well. I've heard people argue before that this sin shouldn't count because Eve was tricked into it. And how many times have we done something with incomplete information? How many times have I, I you know, lashed out at somebody or, uh, or, or you know, done something rash or impulsive because uh, I didn't know or I, I, you know, the, the person was, um, you know, I didn't realize what they, were, what they were thinking, so I start yelling at them. Um, it happens more often than I'd like to admit with my kids. Uh, just being real and honest with you, um, you know, where, where I think that one thing happened, and so I'll go and confront them and then find out that I was completely mistaken. And so I've seen some people argue that, that Eve, her sin here shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't count because she was tricked. She was, she was deceived. The, the serpent came up to her and, and, you know, she got all confused in her thinking, and now, now she just grabs it and she does it, but she's not really in her right mind in that, in that instance. And then they point the sin back to Adam and they say, well, he was actually the one that sinned because Eve was deceived, so she couldn't have. But Adam is the one that sinned because he was sitting right there and he took it as well. And we don't see, you know, we don't see what was going on in his head. Uh, I, don't, I don't buy that. I don't believe that because I think that all sin starts with deception. All sin is based on this idea that I can get something that even it might be a good thing, might be something that God wants me to have, but I can get it in my own way. I can get it in my own abilities. I can get it in my own power. I don't have to wait on God because I, I know that God's going to want me to have this anyway, so I can do it by myself. And so we lie, and we get angry, and we, we cheat, and we, we steal, and, and we, we take things that don't belong to us based on this assumption, well, God wants me to be happy, right? God wants me to have what, what I need, and so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And, but what we do in that process is we, we step outside of this partnership that God wants us to have. We step outside of what God is asking for us, and what, what the reason that God designed us, we step outside of that, and instead we choose to do things in our own way, in our own strength, and in our own power. God wants to partner with us to see things happen. I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and join me up on stage. And in just a minute, uh, well, probably four or five minutes, we'll get ready to take communion. So if we could have our hosts get ready for that as well. Um, so God, so uh, Eve takes the fruit, eats it. All of a sudden they hear God walking through the garden. They're afraid, so they hide. Eventually, God discovers them. They, they come out. They've, they've made themselves clothes because they realized that they were naked. And now there's this, this, this uh, tension where they, they show up in front of God, and now they're, now they're wearing clothes. God says, hey, what's, what's going on here? They ultimately um, realize that, you know, God, God knew the whole time, but of course, he's asking them questions. And it comes out that they had fallen into sin. Adam blames Eve, which is never a good thing to do. Um, but he does it anyway. And, and then we see this, uh, these, this series of curses come down. And now the, the beautiful, ordered realm that God had put together for humanity to thrive in, to work alongside of him, now there's a fracture in that relationship. 
And Adam and Eve are ended up, they, they are kicked out of the garden. They, God doesn't kill them, like Tara Lee said in the video. God doesn't, God doesn't kill them, but instead, there's this fracture now in the relationship and this partnership that God wanted to have with us is broken. But what I want us to do as we're reading the Bible, this is our, our fifth point in reading the Bible. We've got the chaos, we've got the Messiah, we've got Eden. We see the end of the story where now humanity has messed up and, and we're left reading that and we're like, okay, well, God, what's next? God, what are you going to do? And yet in this story, we see a promise. And so I want, us to, I want us to watch for the chaos. I want us to watch for the Messiah, watch for Eden, watch for the end of the story. And I want us to watch for the promise. Because over and over and over again, as we read the Bible, we see a promise that God makes to us that says that I know that things are bad right now. I know that things are messed up. I know that, that there's a fracture, but there's somebody coming. There's a Messiah coming that's going to save us, that's going to rescue us, that's going to deliver us, that's going to set us free. There is a Savior, there's a Deliverer coming so that we can work with Him together again. So that we can come back into His, into his, his plan and so that we can be His partners once more. The same way that God intended for us so that we can see His kingdom come to pass on earth as it is in heaven. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Jesus. I loved that she pointed out in the video that, that we don't see Jesus for the first time in a, in a manger in, in Bethlehem. But we see, Gen we see Jesus all the way back at the beginning. That he was active in creation. He's being spoken about here in Genesis 3.15. And so we're going to watch for that promise as we read through the Bible together. God often speaks to us and lets us know that he's in control and that he's making a way for us. Now, now we live on the other side of the Son of God coming to earth. We have the sinless Lamb of God that lives inside of us, that's helping us. And we have all of these promises that, that we see in the New Testament or, or even in the Old Testament where God promises to work all things together for good. You guys might feel right now like, like there's chaos going on in your life. Like there's something happening inside of you and you need God to make a way. You need God to come down and to bring order to that chaos. And I'm telling you guys that God promises that he's going to work all things together for good. God promises in Isaiah that no weapon formed against us will prosper. That whatever you're going through, you don't have to fear the enemy because God's got it under control. God's partnering with us. That we serve a God that can do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine, he says in Ephesians chapter 3. And in the garden, there was a promise, and all throughout the Bible, we see this promise that God wants to work with us, and that when we work with him, we see blessing, and we see favor, we see God taking care of us. Now, there's, there's no greater symbol of the partnership that God wants to have for us than this idea of communion. So I'm going to have our, our hosts go ahead and come forward at this time. We're going we're gonna to serve the communion elements. There's, uh, there's two cups in each tray. Make sure you get the, the bread and the juice. And I'm going to ask you guys to hold on to those for just a minute as we, 
as we get ready to uh, as we get ready to take this, you guys can go ahead and start distributing the elements there. And as they're as they're doing that, I'm going to have the the worship team go ahead and lead us in this in this song. at the cross that that partnership was reforged. They, that uh, The Bible talks about the veil was torn in two. That separation between God and man was, was uh, done away with. I, I've seen the, the analogy before of the, the cross being like a bridge that, that spans this cavern between where man is and where God is so that now we can come back to Him Again, and in communion, we we celebrate, we recognize, right, and we we remember what God did for us. If you have your elements, go ahead and take the bread and let's hold that together. 
And Paul says this in, in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, God wanted to make a way for us to come back to him. And I don't, I don't know where you're at today, but if you've been struggling in your walk with God, if you've been, if you've been uh, maybe, maybe you just haven't been placing the focus on him that you know you needed to. Maybe, maybe you know, you come regularly on Sundays, but, but Monday through Saturday, God isn't much a part of your life. What we want to do today is we want to give you an opportunity to reconnect with God and to, to kind of refocus on what he has for you. I love that, you know, going into, going into a new year is the perfect time to do this. Where we say, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself again to, to regularly reading the word, to regularly spending time in prayer, to regularly attending church, because I believe that, that you have something for me, that you created me with a purpose, and so I want to live according to your purpose. We're going to take the bread together in just a minute, but when we take the bread, we remember Jesus' body that was broken for us. And the Bible says that, that by his stripes, we are healed. That in this, in this act of sacrifice, that it wasn't just about our spiritual condition, but everything else that we need, all things pertaining to life and godliness, flowed from this as well. And so if you've got a need in here, if there's something that's been weighing on your heart, if there's a, a, a chaos and you need God to come in and to, to intervene in this, you need God to, to uh, create or to recreate something in your life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an opportunity just to raise your hand and we're going to pray over you today. And we're going to believe God that God is going to intervene, that God is going to make a way. So if that's you in here, if you've got just something that you're going through, it can be anything. It could be a financial thing. It could be a spiritual thing. It could be a relationship that's gone awry. It could be healing for you or healing for somebody you know. If you've got a need in here, just go ahead and raise your hand right now. Father God, you see these needs, Lord, and you know every one of them represented. God, I pray that, Lord, you would show up in these circumstances, God, that you're uh, that you would that you would make a way, God, and that, that Lord, you would uh, you would give them the peace and the strength in order to keep going. Father God, we thank you for your body that was broken for us, and Lord, we ask that now you would help us to be able to partner with you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Why don't you guys go ahead and take the bread together? Let's go ahead and take the juice. In the same way, he says, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, what we, what we will learn as we're going through the Bible is that... Um, in order for us to come back to God, there had to be a sacrifice. There had to be somebody to take the punishment. And so what we see in Jesus 
is that, that in order for us to be able to, to come and have a relationship with him again, Jesus became that sacrifice. We actually see this is another pattern that, that shows up as we read through the Old Testament of people offering themselves in place of the, the nation of Israel or in place of the people of God, but they could never do it. They could never fulfill all of the requirements. And so we needed a Messiah. Now, if you're in here and, and you're, you're far from God for whatever reason, I would encourage you at the end of service today, we're going to have somebody back at the next steps counter in the, in the back to your left. We're going we're gonna to have somebody stationed there so that they can, they can pray with you, they can talk to you, they can give you some resources to help you. If you're watching us online today and you want to give your heart to Jesus, I would encourage you, there's a, a connect card linked in the chat. Make sure to click on that, fill it out. We want to make sure that nobody walks alone. But God is, is going to, um, God is, is, is <laughs> we're, all gonna, we're all gonna walk through this together. We're a family that's learning to love like Jesus together. Right now, we want to we wanna take the cup together and we want to remember the sacrifice that God made for us. We want to remember what Jesus did in order to bring us back into relationship with him. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for what you've done. And God, now I pray as we take this cup together, Lord, that we would commit to partnering with you to see your kingdom advanced here on earth. Lord, we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and take the cup together.